Uh, let me begin this morning with a question. And I'll warn you only in this way. It's a really weighty, heavy question. What matters most in life? Now, I know for, for, for some of us, we're going, I just got here. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, my head's not clear. Yes, that question. I realize it's a, it's a big question. I'm asking you to ponder for a moment what's most important in life. What, what matters, you know, above all things? As hard as it, as it is to answer, think about, think about the consequences of no answer. I think we'd all agree, you know, if, if, if you don't know what you're aiming at, right, you, you're not likely to hit it. The, the odds of, of living our life for the things that matter most or the thing that matters most, you know, it drops off significantly if we, we don't know what it is. Or what if, what if, you, what if you think you know? And you live your life, and you're at, you're, you're at your deathbed, and it dawns on you. That wasn't it. I was reviewing some old, old notes and came across this story. This is back in 2004, but 2004, Athens Summer Olympics. Uh, Matt Emons is probably one of the most decorated, best uh, Marksman that the United States has ever produced, certainly Olympic competitions. He's uh, several gold medals, but it was 2004. He had, um, I think, he'd gone through nine rounds, and he had one more shot to take. and And those previous nine shots were all in the 9.1, 9.2 category. He needed to get a seven point something, you know, distance from the from the bullseye. It was honestly, it was a shoe in. So he takes his tenth shot and nails it. It hits the wrong target. It's called a crossfire. I mean, he went from certain gold to nothing. And when I ask the question and we think of that, that this is real life. I mean, people all the time live for the wrong thing and don't, don't discover it till the end. Now, as big as that question is, I think it requires something even bigger to answer someone, quite frankly. I'm going to go to a biblical worldview right now, which many in the room hold that God spoke the world into being, sustains it all by the word of his power, and is moving it towards his end. So in light of that, I think it's fair to say only God can answer that question. Only God, as we believe him to be, could answer that truthfully and authoritatively. So the question we might ask is, has he answered it? And not surprising, we believe that he answered it loudly and clearly. So much so, in fact, we're going to spend the next five weeks in one paragraph of the New Testament where we believe he answered it with clarion, you know, clarity. We're going to spend five weeks in one passage where we're going to take it little by little, a little section at a time, and just drill ourselves into this answer because as we do, we're praying it'll go so deep in our souls that honestly, y'all, we'll, we'll be changed by that truth and that answer personally uh, and 
corporately. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, before we read the text for the first time, uh, I need to set the context. Well, I want to practice good biblical Bible study methods here. We know we can't take a verse. You can't take a text and go, well, this is what it means, and this is what it means to me, and this is how I live it, without the context, what's before it and what's behind it. So if we're going to go to these 11 verses, let me set the context, which is found in the first 14 chapters of 1 Corinthians. You don't need to take any notes on this. I just want you to listen and listen to kind of an oral overview of what we know of this letter. We know from Acts chapter 18 that Paul spent about 18 months in the city of Corinth. And while he was there, he planted a church. What does that mean, he planted a church? He, he went to Corinth, uh, which I'll describe in a moment. He preached the gospel. People came to put their faith in the gospel. And then more than one came to faith and they began to get together in, in homes and they would get together in order to proclaim Christ, mature in the faith and be equipped to give their lives away. Now, you know, that's our mission statement, but that's the truth. They were together in order to exalt Christ, to be under the word, to grow in that faith in Christ and to know how to reach the rest of Corinth with the gospel. Now, Corinth is a city we think of, it could have been as, it, it have a population as high as 700,000 people. I mean, this thing's pretty, pretty darn big. And uh, it, was a, it was a thriving trade uh, center. It, it's an, on an ithmus, which is a little strip of land, and it's got water above and water below. So goods would travel from the south, would dock, they would have to cross land, go straight through Corinth, reload in a boat, and continue northward. The world came to and through this city of Corinth. From talk through the New Testament, this is Ken Bowen, Bruce Wilkinson's overviews of books of the Bible. They write this, quote, This cosmopolitan center thrived on commerce, entertainment, vice, and corruption. Pleasure seekers came there, and this is the phrase that's most interesting to me, came there to spend money on holiday from morality. Corinth became so notorious for its evils that the term to Corinthiazomai, to act like a Corinthian became a synonym for debauchery and prostitution. Uh, Corinth was a, the home to the temple of Aphrodite. And I grin when I read this. It's a serious matter, but I grin when I read this because I got a text from my son maybe a, a month ago. He was, you know, he was in college and he was at one of these dances or whatever and he danced with a girl was smitten. And he sent a text to the whole family and said, she was a smaller Aphrodite, which I went, oh my God, she's a smaller goddess of love. This is what, the, this is what that means. Um, uh, there, were, there, there were at this temple a thousand cult prostitutes available for worship for free to all who would come to worship there. Um, about four years after leaving Corinth, Paul finds himself on his third missionary journey uh, in the city of Ephesus, and he gets word that there's trouble in Corinth. There's trouble in the church at Corinth. And this is one of the mysteries of our, of our New Testaments. He writes a letter to them, but we don't have it. So you see, there are things that they were written that we don't have that were not in our canon. And Paul wrote, and he refers to it in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and says, I wrote formerly. Well, we don't have that letter. Well, then a little bit later, he gets word again, and apparently it was a written correspondence where the church in Corinth had actually written Paul and said, man, we got a problem, we got this, we got that, we got this, we got that. And then Paul picks up his pen, and he writes the letter 
of 1 Corinthians. And he begins to address their problems. Now, uh, 1 Corinthians, if we summarized it in a statement, it would be it's a letter of correction. It's a hard letter. And he's correcting major doctrinal and, quite frankly, moral issues within the church. When you outline the book of 1 Corinthians, and everybody outlines it this way, it's always outlined in this way. It's divisions, disorder, difficulties. <laughs> Welcome to church. You know, this is the church at Corinth. And I'm going to give you an overview. You don't have to turn to these passages because I'm just going to run us through. This is a you know, Cliff Notes version of some of the potholes they found themselves in. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. He writes, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. In the church at Corinth, they didn't get along. Uh, there, there were these party spirits where we, we're of this, you're of that. You don't, know what, you don't have what we have. We have what you don't have. We don't like you. It was all happening in the church, backbiting, disunity. Chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes and says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. You understand in Corinth, there was this Gnostic knowledge, Gnostic spirit in which within the church, there were people that thought they were smarter than other people. I know what you don't know. And I even have the spiritual secret that if you don't do it, then you don't have the secret that I, this is all going on within the church. Chapter 5, verse 1, he writes, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. In other words, there's immorality in the church that the, the Af- worshiping Aphrodites, they're not even doing it. And he actually names it that someone has his father's wife. What we know from that is that there was a son who was having sexual relationships with his stepmom. Here's the kicker. And the church was just going on about their business. He goes on in chapter 6, verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? In other words, they, they, were, they maybe have a business dealings within the church. Some falling out happened within that. And rather than resolve that, they, they were suing each other. Now, here's the, here's the thing we see in the context. You got a guy sleeping with his stepmom, you're not saying anything, but one of you begins to lose a little money or you, hurt, you have misunderstanding and you're gonna sue each other over that. He's really coming strong to the Corinthian church. Chapter seven, on the whole, he addresses sex and marriage, divorce, remarriage, total confusion about the nature of marriage, uh, sexuality, Chapters 8 through 10 are about uh, using some newfound liberty in Christ to hurt each other. That's the meat sacrifice to idol section. And so there were those who were saying, hey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I have freedom. Jesus has freed me from all things. I can do whatever I want. And they were doing things that actually hurt other people, hurt their growth within the church. Chapter 11 tells us that the church itself was disorderly. That when they met, it was not order. They had confusion about the role of men and women in the church. They, had, they were abusing the Lord's table. What does that mean? It means they were coming to the Lord's table and snarfing it all up like a buffet. 
instead of for what it was intended to convey. And then perhaps, you know, quite indicting of all these things, chapters 12 to 14. So he's got to take three chapters and explain to them that the gifts that God had given the church, the spiritual gifts that he had entrusted to his people individually, the Spirit gives these gifts in order to build up the body, strengthen the body, encourage the body for the work of Christ and the ministry of the church, uh, they were misusing them. So he takes three chapters to take this very thing meant for their good that they are using for harm. And I go through that, and I want you to know it's not that we're, we're, I'm not throwing them under the bus, because if we did, we would have to get under the bus too. This is not to them. It's to us. And to think that the things I just went through don't happen here, in this room, in, 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 in the congregation at Franklin Congregation in Brentwood, do you, you think that's, no, in our fallenness, no, we, we, we're, we're in this. This is a letter, as I'll say later, it's a letter to us. And by the way, it's not the Corinthian church, it's not this, you know, this terrible culture, which by the way, you think about the culture I just described in Corinth, what does that describe? It describes our culture, it describes, it describes the world, this is the world we live in. But, but it's, this is not a case of the culture coming to the church at Corinth, surrounding it, putting it under siege, banging on it, starving them out until the church finally says, okay, open the doors, let them in. Now, this is not what happened here. What is this? This is a case where the church opened its doors to the culture. You know what I'm saying here. We're here to be in the world, but not of the world. But they opened the doors to the culture that the world's values would come within the church. And then we find the church actually collapsing upon itself. Man, there's some lessons in there for us even this day, uh, as you and I know. Well, now we come to chapter 15. Okay, so there's the context. And now we're at chapter 15. And chapter 15 is a bit of an anomaly. It's, it's like Paul has written this letter. And each time he writes, he goes on these excursus where he's, he's addressing questions they ask. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to how he says it. In chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now, concerning the things you wrote, and he writes back. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, I'm going to write about that. And even on chapter 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection, and he addresses that. But when he gets to 15, it's got a different nature to it, the, the, the text itself. It's not like he's answering their questions. Craig Blomberg, excellent New Testament scholar, uh, wrote this, and this is, uh, this is what got me to see, I think, what's going on within the, the text. He says, quote, it's possible that chapter 15 may be addressing the otherwise unstated issue at the root of all the other problems the Corinthians faced, end quote. In other words, Paul, having addressed the fruit, which was not good, bad fruit, bad fruit, bad fruit, stops and says, let me address the root, you see. And in fact, I think he goes to the taproot, which is producing the bad fruit. And when I say that, I want to suggest that in this context and text itself, he answers the question, what matters most in life? I want you to listen for his answer. Read uh, with me, follow along in your Bibles as I read our text for today and in fact for the next few weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you 
as of first importance. This is kind of like highlighted with yellow right there for me. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. If you asked Paul the question, Paul, what matters most in life, his answer would be the gospel. The gospel matters most. Uh, the word gospel is the Greek word euangelion, and sometimes we say it's evangelion because it's, you know, we get evangel, evangelism from it. Euangelion means good news. The Old Testament, a runner would come from the battlefield. This is how, you know, the, we run marathons now. This is how it all, all began. You know, they, they run and they come to tell what happened at the battle, and they would say, We won! That's good news. In the New Testament, Euangelion, or its form, it's used over 70 times, 60 of those times from Paul. He loved the word. In fact, when you look at your text in verses 1 and 2, he uses it three times. Note, he begins, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. That's euangelion. I made known to you the euangelion, the good news. But he also says, which I preach. That word is euangelizo. So he's saying, I made known to you the gospel, which I gospeled to you. And then verse two, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word, which I, you angelizo, which I gospeled to you three times. Well, what is this gospel, the good news that he speaks of? Verses three through five. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. That's the gospel, men and women, in distilled, 100 proof form. It's probably not a good analogy to say it that way. But that's the gospel. And, and I think it's true that when we say gospel, I think it, this is, you know, this is us in our day. Uh, I, I, we can't overuse the word, quite frankly. You know, we gospel everything, gospelize, gospel this, gospel-centered, gospel. And, and I think we, we can do that, and, and we don't want to be guilty of that. But we can do it so much it loses what it is. And, and, and even apart from that, I think, even if I came to you and asked you the question, what is the gospel? If I hadn't done what I just did, I wonder what you would have answered. I actually spent an hour and a half in downtown Franklin two weeks ago, and I asked the question from some visitors, and I guess there's one local Franklin person in this. 
I asked them the question and I want you to listen to their answer even as you think about what my own might have been before I said, just said what I did. Let's listen to what they said. Uh, that was a, a stretch for me. You know, I'm an introvert. When walking up to people and asking, I'm just waiting for someone. Do you mind if I interrupt you? Yes. You know, I was waiting for that. It, it almost happened maybe when one walked away. But their their honesty was so refreshing, so good. Uh, you know, we giggled a little at the lady's answer. And yet, yet, yet we, it's, it's the truth. They were very integrous in their answers. And what you hear in that, quite frankly, is some real clarity and some real confusion about the gospel. And would you say... That if it's the most important thing, I'll talk about this in a moment of first support. Do you think we ought to live life with, with, with lack of clarity? I, I would suggest no. We need to be absolutely clear on this. 
And by the way, when we say, what is the gospel? We're going to answer that over the next four weeks. We're going to very specifically answer, what is it? What does it mean? How does it apply to me? Now, I'm not going to do that this morning, though, you see. In the remaining moments, all, all my purpose this morning was to open, us to the, open up to the text and then help us understand why it's of first importance. What does that mean? And what does that mean to us day to day? So let me do that. Um, of first importance, it's really, it's one Greek word, protos, and it, and it, it can mean uh, first in line, so to speak. In other words, first in a sequence. You know, you're, you're first and there's eight people behind you. It can mean that. It's translated that way sometimes in our Bibles, but it can also mean first as in it's of higher value. It's of greater significance. First as in it's the most important thing. And when we read this, we, I believe Paul, it's translated correctly here, it's, it's of first importance. It's, it's uh, Paul saying that the good news is not just the first thing in, in the things that you have to do. You've got to do that first. It certainly is that. But he's saying, no, 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 it's, it's of first importance. Not only in the beginning, it's of first importance, meaning it's most important for all of life. So it's actually of first importance right now. Not just going back to that time you believe 20 years ago, five years ago, whatever, but today. Now we see this by what Paul says in the first two verses. And this is what I want us to look at for a moment. I want you to note chapter 15, verse 1, when he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached, that's past tense, to you, which you also received, which is past tense, in which, you are also, in which you also stand. We'll be taking those words apart in weeks to come, though. What I want you to see is he's talking to Christians. He's talking to those to whom he preached the gospel. They've received the gospel. So, so the first clue that this is not just a sequential first importance, but global in all times is he's talking to Christians, to believers, about the first importance of the gospel. Then verse two, by which also you are saved. That's to say, in my New American Standard, it's saved, but it's not, literally, it's not literally saved, past tense. It's a present passive verb, which is by which you are being saved. If you have the ESV version, that's what it says, and that's correct. And you scratch your head and you go, wait, wait, I thought you either they're saved How can they be saved and being saved? Which is it? Which is it? You see, it's both. And this is where we've got to be so careful. We've taught this many times and we'll teach it many times moving forward to remind us when we think of the gospel and the gospel brings us salvation. We think of salvation. We've got to think about it in correct biblical terms. There is one salvation, okay, one salvation, but you understand our salvation has three parts to it. There is justification, there is sanctification, and there is glorification. And it's all salvation. But we dare not get the three confused. Because when we live with an, an unclear understanding of, that, of salvation in those three parts, or, 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 or a diminished or, or less than full view of that, I'm going to tell you, it wreaks havoc in your faith and in your experience of salvation, of the gospel. You see, when you believe 
the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried and raised again, and you're trusting what Jesus did, he did for you. When you believe that at a moment in time, you are justified like that. God himself, because you are now in Christ, declares you not guilty. He, he's, he's declared you righteous, declared that way by God, justified. Gang, there is nothing you can do to improve it or diminish it. Listen, your disobedience doesn't affect your justification in Christ. Neither does your obedience. <laughs> it's faith in Christ. You're justified. Then in Romans 8.20, Paul talks about the fact that we are glorified the moment we believe, so to speak. You'll see this in time. But that we, we will be glorified. What does that mean? It means, and no, no, no one in the room is glorified, by the way. Because you're not glorified until Jesus comes to get you or you die and you're with him. And in that moment, you see, we see him face to face. We're like him in the fullness, you see, of his glory. Do you understand there's nothing you can do? Obey, disobey, if you're in Christ, your obedience or disobedience, that doesn't touch your glorification. In fact, in Romans 8, 20, Paul speaks of being glorified, those who are in Christ, in the past tense even though it hasn't happened because it's so sure. Okay, between justified and glorified, though, what do we have? We are sanctified. Now, here's the, the, the key to keep in mind in our sanctification. This is, by the way, why you're still here. You think about it. If you, if you, if you trust Christ and you're going to be glorified, why not that happen immediately? Why are we left on the earth? Why are we left? Well, in order to become more like Christ in our character such that we can reflect to a lost world the glory of God. And that's why, we're, that's why we remain. But in your sanctification, listen, this is how life goes in sanctification. Sometimes it's three steps forward, two steps back. How about this? Sometimes it's one step forward, five steps back. So you're up, you're down. Our disobedience, our obedience shapes, you see, our characters, it's being formed in our progressive, progressing sanctification. And here's where we can get confused. For example, we do not base our assurance of salvation on our sanctification. You see, if, if you base your assurance, and you, people do this all the time, you know, I don't know if I'm saved, I think I'm saved, but man, you're not gonna believe what I did last week. What I've, you don't know what I've, I trusted Christ years ago, but man, I've, not done, I've done some terrible things. You, if you base your assurance of life with God forever in heaven on your sanctification, you see, then you will begin to perform for your assurance. See, our assurance is not based on our sanctification, but on what? Our justification. And if you begin to perform for your assurance, just to make, I, I think I'm in because I've done well, you begin to do that. Listen, you're on the razor's edge of actually performing for your justification. And men and women, that's not salvation at all. At all. We dare not get those confused. Now back to first importance. We know Paul is speaking, because we know Paul is speaking to those who've already believed, then we know first importance is, is for us as Christians, not just, hey, it's the, you know, at the very beginning when you believe. We know it's for our Christian life because Paul's not talking then about 
justification nor glorification, is he? He's talking to Christians about their sanctification. It's the most important thing all the time because by the gospel, we are not just justified and glorified. It's by the gospel that we are sanctified. Lord, I don't, I still, that's not, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I tried to come up with something different on this. This is going to sound inconsequential in some ways, but I think it'll make our point. I have an ongoing battle personally uh, with codependency. I'm a recovering codependent. And, and you know, a third of the room, four, half the room's just checked out, but the other half stay with me. Uh, codependency is, is very real, and I, I uh, struggle with it. It is, I've said this before, you guys know this, it's, 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 um, it's people-pleasing on steroids. It's that sin by which in this, we, we actually, I actually view myself through other people's eyes. And so I, look at, I, I view my value and self-worth through, if you think this message is good, I wonder if they're going to get this. I wonder if I'm, I, and, yeah, it can be in any setting, but I see myself through your eyes at me rather than seeing myself as the scripture speaks of me and as God sees me. And this is where this can trip me up and in so many different ways. You know, I can't go a week without running into someone who used to go to fellowship. That's just life in this community. You know, I'm walking around, I've been running to them all the time. And um, so maybe some of you someday, so do, you know, it's okay. But, um, but when I do, and this, you know, when I see that encounter coming, I just get this grunge all over me. And it's, I just begin to, I just, I'm just going, man, what did I say? What did we do? I guess we hurt their feelings. I guess we didn't take care of this. We I, but do you see where I'm going with that? See, I, I'm just going to interact with someone, and it's all about who? It's all about me. What me, 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 you know what I'm saying? And I get this shame that just gets in me and on me, so to speak. They haven't even done anything. You know, people can leave for whatever reason. It's not my role to keep people in church at, fe- at fellowship. That's not my job. Now, what does that have to do with, okay, here's, here's where I'm going with this. What do I need in that encounter in that moment? Can I suggest that I need the gospel? What do you mean? I need to, to, to remind myself that Jesus died for my sins. He was buried and he was raised again. That Jesus did that because he loves me. And it's Jesus the one who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it's Jesus who says, Lloyd, you're enough. I love you so much. I came to die for you. It's Jesus. You're my deepest satisfaction. I don't need the approval of these people or you or what. I don't need that to be who you've made me to be and all that I am in Christ. You see, I need the gospel for me. Does that make sense? Now, that's sort of inconsequential. I know it's very personal, and some of you are going, I don't get that at all. Well, let me ask this question. What were the consequences for the church at Corinth when they let go of that which was of first importance? Divisions in the body, 
an attitude of arrogance. One guy sleeps with his stepmom and no one does anything. But when one feels cheated financially, they start suing one another. There's sexual promiscuity and immorality that that, that not even the non-Christians practice. Marriage and marital roles get confused. Divorce becomes normal. The Lord's table is dishonored. Spiritual gifts that are meant to build up the body tear it down. That's what happens. As I said earlier, I'm not throwing them under the bus because we're under the bus with them. That's what happens when we lose that which, was, that which is of first importance. The letters to us, it's Paul's corrective words to us. It's not shaming. In other words, Paul didn't write this and grab them and go, slap, slap, slap. I can't believe you guys. And he didn't, it's not shaming. It's a powerful word of hope, you see. You think about this church in Corinth, you know, I mean, you know, he goes to Corinth, the city I described, and he preaches the gospel. And in that, in that place, God saves people. And there's a church, and it's still a church, even when Paul's writing back to them with all their mess and problems. Why? Because of the power of the gospel, you see, to save, justify, sanctify, glorify. It's an amazing word of hope, and let's receive it in that way. Here's the sobering message of 1 Corinthians. When the gospel is not of first importance, the world will be. That's the truth. <laughs> there's no, I've said this before, there's no Switzerland in the Christian life, no neutral place to go, no neutral place to hide. If the gospel is not of first importance, then the world will be. And it's, that's true for us, gang. The consequences are staggering corporately and, and, and personally. Mark Dever does a very nice job of outlining the book of 1 Corinthians, and he talks about these three things that we see when you go through the letter. That the church is meant to be set apart and distinct. That the church is meant to show unity in diversity. That the church is here to show sacrificial love. Now take those three things and go, why, why is that? Why is the church to show that? I want you to think about this. Because God is set apart and holy. Because God is a unity, even in diversity. Because God, he is love and he shows it sacrificially. And what is the church? Why are we gathered? Why, why are we the church? To glorify God. And so these three things are there to mark us, right? That's, that's what we're to show to a lost and dying world. And when we let go of that, which is of first importance, we let go of those three things and we forfeit the very reason we're here. And y'all, it's not just for us. It's for a world that's dying and needs the gospel. We have no voice for the gospel when we let go of the gospel as being of first importance. Well, we will end uh, a certain way each week. We'll end by reading uh, the three verses there in 1 Corinthians 3 through 5, but we'll end today uh, a little differently, and I'm going to ask the band to come up because it's such a weighty message. And I want you to feel this. I, I want you to feel the weight of it, but not a weight like this, like, huh. I want us to feel the weight like this. This is important. And I want us to feel the hope of the gospel.
And so I'm going to ask you to stand, put your Bibles down and stand. We're going to sing. When we sing off, you know, singing helps us move, move truth, I think, into this region called our heart. It, it, help, it gets us there. And so I want us to declare these words. And we're going to make some statements in this song of the certainty, power, the steadfastness of the gospel for us. And that's what we walk out of these doors with. With that, let's lift our voices. We will end our messages each week by reciting together the gospel according to Paul. So read out loud with me as I lead us, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. May we continue to find that the gospel is way more than we ever hoped for ourselves, for each other, for this community, you see, and for the world. God bless. Yeah.